0: Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. Not sure if you heard, but uh, things may be a little tumultuous in the UK right now with a lot of Brexit developments. But the Right Honorable Lord Mayor of the City of London, that's Peter Eslin, he's going to discuss why Canadians should still be investing in trade with the UK and betting on the Brits' financial services acumen. Then a little later on, Retail Insider's Craig Patterson, he's going to break down Loblaw's efforts to go toe-to-toe with Amazon. We're also going to discuss Ikea downsizing from its iconic big box stores. And then, I don't know, maybe a little controversy when it comes to the condo market here in Vancouver. A shock, I'm sure. But Craig also has some stuff to share with regards to what's going on at Oak Ridge. That's all coming up next on BIV Today. Comprising the central business district of London, England, the historic city of London is one of the leading business hubs in the world. Our next guest is an ambassador of sorts for the city or the square mile, as it's also known, who joins us today to discuss everything from trade between Canada and the UK to, I guess, some ongoing Brexit negotiations that I think we'll be hearing lots more about in the coming weeks, months, and who knows how much longer after that? But first, I'd like to welcome the right Honorable Lord Mayor of the City of London. That is Peter Eslin. Thank you for joining us, Lord Mayor. Hi, how are you? Good I'm to doing you. quite well. I'm glad that you're able to come visit Vancouver. When you do a trip like this, what is kind of job number one for getting the message out there? You're very new to this role as the uh, Lord uh, Mayor of the uh, City of London right now. Tell us what the job is to you know illuminate what you
1: guys are all about. Well, I'm the 691st Lord Mayor. Uh, we hold the job for one year. Uh It's a pretty intense job, uh acting as an ambassador for UK business uh, broadly, but more specifically financial services, which really has its heart in the City of London. Uh, a job that, as I say, one has been doing, not personally, but for about a thousand years. Um, today, perhaps uh, slightly more complex than it was a thousand years ago. Uh, so, as I say, very much focusing on promoting uh, the UK uh, opportunities to foreign investors, uh, to foreign vis- uh, businesses, but also looking for opportunities to um, strengthen long-term relations. And the UK has got a very long-term relationship with uh, with Canada. Uh, so, Vancouver happens to be my first international visit
0: I like that Uh, look and I I don't want to bury the lead here I I think you're going to guess what I'm going to ask about today but um, interesting developments over in your hometown right now with regards to the delay of the Brexit uh, deal vote that was supposed to go through and I want to know what your pitch is though for Canadians that might be a little uncertain about maybe continued investment or continued
1: relationships with a lot of these British businesses so clearly, the context of, of Brexit um, has created some uh, some degrees of caution, and I think that's understandable in the sense of uh, what is the likely outturn. Uh, but at the same time, I think there is an increasing recognition that um, that there is life beyond Brexit. Um, that is a, a largely a political uh, a political discussion um, that's impacting, obviously, directly between the UK uh, and the EU. Behind it, from the perspective of of the UK, is wanting to um, have a broader trading relationship with countries outside the the EU. Um, And we've made no bones about that. Um, The UK has historically been an international trading nation, and it wants to continue to do that. Uh, And I think it wants to do that in a way that seeks to promote free trade, seeks to promote uh, a greater access to uh, mobility. Um, and we were uh, largely being constrained in doing that. And certainly the British people felt that they wanted to go it alone. At this point, though, Canada
0: does have a free trade agreement with the European Union, CEDA. Um, but we could be in a bit of a spot of uncertainty going forward with the UK. What would you like to see to, I guess reignite some of that uncertainty that people want to have between these two very historic trading partners, which is Canada and the United Kingdom?
1: Well, in terms of where we would like to be, we would like uh, and certainly from the city's point of view, we've been very clear around really three key objectives. One is to uh, to maintain trading relationships. So as far as the UK is concerned, it would love to take on uh, CETA and Prime Minister Trudeau and Prime Minister May have largely said that is you know, a, a priority. Um, Secondly, in terms of transition, um, we don't want to have a cliff edge. I mean, that, that is in nobody's interests. Uh, and so the current construct of a deal on the table, we believe, is better than no deal at all. Um, and thirdly, we want to uh, be able to operate a, a sort of a, a multicultural environment with access to, to talent. Uh, in the financial sector specifically and fintech um, more even more specific, I mean, 42% of the people in that sector... Uh, derived from outside the United Kingdom. Um, So it is is very much a multicultural environment which we want to uh, sustain.
0: Well, let's jump into fintech because I think if you look at the Vancouver ecosystem, it is interesting. Now we're doing quite well when it comes to being a fintech ecosystem. And that's for a city that is not in the, you know, central financial hub of the, of the country, which is Toronto. I, a lot of people say, well, that allows us to think outside the box. What could, you know, maybe Vancouverites learn from what's going on in the city of London, especially when it comes to that fintech factor?
1: So I think uh, in terms of looking at opportunities, I mean, one of the reasons I'm here is uh, is Vancouver is regarded as Canada's number one startup. It's got that huge amount of innovation. Uh, so I think it's a question of what can we learn from Vancouver as well as to what can Vancouver learn from from, from London. Uh, in terms of the latter first, uh, I think we have been very successful um, in a number of areas. One in attracting international investment um, in the first half of of uh, twenty eighteen that went up significantly uh, to two and a half billion pounds on the one point six billion for the whole year um in uh, in 2017 so significant growth in capital coming into uh into london um secondly um the regulatory environment is one that um i think we are Uh, We're not complacent, but there's been a lot of dialogue between the regulator and the industry such that Project Innovate, uh, which was set up by the regulator and then Sandbox underneath that, as an environment where businesses could test out uh, their product and capability in a safe way albeit with customers under regulatory scrutiny, but without necessarily the full force of regulation. So that's been very successful. It's a regulatory model now that is being effectively replicated across 20 regulators worldwide. And it may well be something that that Canada uh, wishes to to follow. but thirdly, I think it is, is the whole ease of doing business. I mean, one of the reasons why London is, is largely seen as sort of the fintech capital of the world is, is that it's not the scale necessarily. I mean, obviously Silicon Valley historically has been the scale of a lot of innovation. But it is the the fact that it is all there with more or less in the square mile. I mean, we're expanding into Canary Wharf and Shoreditch and the other parts of, of, of London. But largely speaking, you've got the investor base, you've got the customer base, you've got a lot of research, you've, uh, you've got access to um, different services in terms of legal accounting. And again, that has been very, very successful in creating that incubator, uh, incubator model. Um, but, you know, we're not complacent. Uh, if we look at the growth in Vancouver um, uh, and what is happening here and, and the Cascadia corridor, your access uh, and your, your links into Asia, um, it's an opportunity to see whether we from the UK can build bridges uh, with Canada and particularly with Vancouver to see whether we can develop some collaboration and some, some areas of mutual interest.
0: Well, I'm curious about that. Uh, let's go back to the regulatory sandbox for a moment here, because if you look at Canada, we, we've got a curious constitution, and I think you'd say that for virtually all countries, but – Every single province and every single territory has its own regulator, which it's just a nightmare for everybody that I speak to. What advice do you have uh, for maybe the British Columbian regulators who they actually did float this idea of our own kind of regulatory sandbox? And there's a lot of kind of disappointment that came through it when uh, some of the details were released. What advice would you have for regulators
1: that are thinking about doing something like this within the realm of fintech? Well, I, I mean, mine is not to to my role is not to sort of dictate uh, to the regulator specifically, but uh, what obviously has been successful um, is uh, that that linkage between the regulator and the business community. So, in the business community part of the equation, we created Innovate Finance, and the City of London was very much behind uh, uh, that. So, effectively, a trade institu- a trade association for the fintech industry, uh, and. Through dialogue, we ended up setting out a framework that sought to still achieve high standards in regulation, um, but equally recognise the sort of the the nature of innovation, the experimentation that needed to take place, uh, the speed with which that would occur, uh, and and so there was a mutual understanding. Now, if you apply that to a multi-jurisdictional environment. what, what that is obviously more challenging. Each regulator may have uh, their slight differences. But what I would encourage is, is that business community to dialogue with their local regulator. Um, Clearly, when one then takes steps out of that boundary to another, uh, in your case, another province uh, or to another marketplace, yes, one's got to go the extra step. And and that's what we're seeing now in terms of UK businesses as they want to expand either into Canada or into Singapore or into China. um, They have to look at at the issues associated with those markets. But if the starting point is one of a, a solid box, then they know what they're doing within their home market. Then it's then it's a fundamentally just a bolt on um, it to uh, additional regulation. So, to me, it's collaboration, it's dialogue, it's actually understanding the issues. You said that you know you could look at Vancouver as a potential
0: bridge to other locations around the globe. As, as you said, you know we're, we're very close to the west coast. We are on the west coast, but uh, also the American west coast as well as look at across the Pacific. Why do you see Vancouver as you know, I guess, ascendant to a certain degree as being you know primed for a good location and primed for maybe investment and where
1: opportunities you could see fitting in for that? So, I mean, I think I, I start by looking just some of the factors. Um, I mean firstly um, I mean having visited Vancouver myself quite a few times albeit more for social reasons I mean Vancouver has is, is sort of a multicultural uh city um with uh, with you know a, a, a fair asian influence but that makes it uh, actually, quite dynamic. Um, there's uh, you end up with a richer a richer product. So from that perspective, um, again, there is a lot of synergies between almost London and Vancouver. We have a, a number of characteristics. We're both maritime as well, um, but that sense of uh, that that sense of, of um, innovative capability linked to. Um, understandings around the rule of law, uh, ease of doing business. Um, those are all facets that enable um, small businesses to grow rapidly. Uh, so if you look at the comparisons between London and Vancouver, I would say that, that it is – that ability to take you know, a large number of incubator businesses and, and to sort of you know, see which ones end up becoming what we call unicorns, you know, the sort of the, the, the billion dollar companies.
0: So I, I led you into pretty much having no choice but to complement Vancouver, but I want you to maybe complement your own city. If there is a Canadian business right now that is considering making some sort of entry point into Europe, why choose
1: London versus, you know, uh, uh, Frankfurt, for example? so i mean the for, for, from my perspective um the the evidence is, is is huge um i mean in terms of scale uh, i mean london outstrips the whole of europe put together in terms of fintech capacity um the level of investment is not only coming from domestic sources in the uk but international sources uh so access to capital uh, again outstrips tenfold um that throughout the uh, the rest of europe um thirdly i mean at the moment access to talent uh, remains huge i mean we've got 75000 people in the fintech community uh we're focused on continuing to grow that through through digital skills um both in in business and in our education system so again we're fueling uh, that capacity we're not complacent i mean there are other marketplaces in europe uh, that has got talent um but you know when we do surveys both within the UK, they will obviously say that the UK is stronger. But when we do effectively work uh, internationally and i'm I'm travelling internationally, um, you know other markets want to do business uh, with the UK. The rule of law is is more straightforward. Uh, the ease of doing business, whether it's from an accounting standpoint, uh, setting up companies, it's just far quicker. Again, we come back to the regulatory environment we've we've paved the way to make it easier for businesses to both invest and set up in, in London. Now, we're not complacent. Um, you know, There are those in the rest of Europe who would w- wish to do that, and they're clearly using the context of Brexit um, as, a, as a threat. But actually, through the last two-year period, um, we have been seeing huge growth in fintech in London, not in other cities in Europe.
0: Uh, let's go to that talent you know, question that we have here because that's something that is hitting Vancouver very hard. Or We are a very expensive city to live, which I'm sure you can relate to being from uh, you know, London. Um, how do you go about making sure that you are going to be kind of the right place that people want to relocate to or are attracted to working in any given location?
1: So, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, And I I think, again, if one goes back to the heart of the city, um, the city is not solely around its business model. Um, You're right to point out it's not a cheap city. It is an expensive city. And I think we have similar issues um, in London. Uh, to Vancouver, in the sense of, once it becomes attractive, it becomes more expensive. So we we have to tackle that. Um, but we're also committed to uh, the smart city culture, um, looking at the cultural side, so the the artistic side. So these are all components that actually make London um, an attractive place. We we see that initially through education. Um, people coming to university even schools um, and deciding then either to stay on or to set up businesses. So one of the reasons why London is so attractive as a marketplace is not only is the end product, i.e. developing the business relatively easy, but the environmental, uh, you know, the a place to live, grow, even potentially have families and develop your own uh, social side uh, is attractive. It's not without its issues. Um, sustainability of that model is, uh, is challenging because house pricing has got more expensive. Um, but we are putting in more infrastructure, cross rails coming in, uh, which will give access to uh, the city from a, uh, from a wider environs. So, um, uh, you know, it's something that we have to continue to work at.
0: So I'm just going to nerd out for a split second here. I always like going into like funny minutia, but I, for the city of London, it's only what, like 10,000 people that actually like live there any given time. Yes, How I does it really work out for maybe like the average like city of London dweller? Like what, what's day-to-day life for them?
1: You're right. Um I mean of course if you go back a hundred years, um the reason we built the railways back at the turn of the twentieth century was that uh business was largely outside London and so we built the railways to take people from London to uh, to, to sort of the industrial communities surrounding. Nowadays you're right, we only have about seven and a half thousand people who live in the square mile. Uh and it's not a square mile actually, it's one point one four miles. But anyway, <laughs> we we'll, if we want to be nerdy we yes. can be we can be nerdy. Um but but you know what we're also seeing now is is changes in work practices and one of the again one of the reasons why london is increasingly attractive is we are open to a more diverse work patterns uh increasingly more and more people working in virtual communities uh working from home uh and that is becoming a very acceptable way of of working arrangements, um, uh, and I'm sure we're seeing it here in Vancouver. But the whole concept of sort of multi desking, you know, whether it's the WeWorks, um, uh, but we, we we're seeing that much m- a much more fluid uh, way of working, which people find attractive, particularly younger generations. So it's um, in in terms of a a city, um, the city is. Is the 1.4 square miles, but in reality, you know, a lot of our growth is on the on the edges of the city in Shoreditch uh, or in the West End or if now in Camden. Um, so a lot of some of the big um, US companies have come in and and set up uh, head offices in Camden.
0: Well, excellent, uh, Lord Mayor. I want to thank you for joining us on the program today.
1: Brilliant. Thank you very much.
0: That is right, Honourable Lord Mayor of the City of London, Peter Eslin. and we'll be right back to discuss the latest news in retail. And joining us now, it is Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief at RetailInsider.com. Craig, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I don't know. blah. it seems to want to go toe-to-toe with Amazon Prime with its own loyalty program, $99 a year. There's a whole bunch of kind of free offerings, including some free shipping opportunities And they've had a very successful pilot. What do you think the chances are that a company like Loblaw that, you know, we know own, say, Shoppers Drug Mart, a lot of the, say, other big retail brands out there, uh, you know, for instance, uh, Superstore, tell me what success rate do you think this is going to have going up against Amazon?
2: I'm sitting on the fence, but I think it's going to be successful. And the only reason I say that is the uh, size of uh, Loblaw as a retailer and the amount of uh, market share that you know, it has I mean a lot of us shop in Loblaw stores very regularly <laughs> and I think that uh, you know that uh, market penetration is somewhat similar to Amazon perhaps even stronger I would say um, in terms of you know the, I think that they can build a loyalty uh, based on this uh, I think it was a really interesting move and I, I guess my only question is are there enough freebies to justify the $99 a year uh, amount considering yeah. Amazon Prime is 79 I think still.
0: Well, let's talk about that, because at least with Amazon Prime, you do get the video. You also get some free shipping opportunities. Uh, This, uh, they do offer offer some free shipping. There's also that click and collect shopping where, you you know, you you buy online and you go collect it from the store, which, I mean, I think that's kind of becoming par for the course when it comes to a lot of retailers now. Um, But the thing that really stands out to me, though, is that this pilot started off with 5,000 shoppers. These were kind of the hyper loyal shoppers that that, that had identified, and then they expanded it to twenty five thousand. Now they hope to have you know maybe a hundred thousand people within a year's time. I think the growth rate of this uh, proves that there could be getting some traction with this.
2: Yes, I think so. I think given the success, clearly people are seeing, uh, or at least those members are seeing, benefit to. Uh, But Loblaw is offering, again, which is interesting. I mean, it's another loyalty program. They've already got PC Optimum points, and uh, I think they're still called that. Are they not? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I've got my Optimum card with me. Actually, me too. And, and, uh, you know, again, there's a loyalty program there. Uh, I would argue that I don't think the loyalty program is as good as it was, or at least I don't see the same points that I was getting before. So uh, perhaps this is another avenue for, uh, you know, building loyalty. Uh, I'm not to say that the PC optimum has been unsuccessful. I think it has with the credit card and with, you know, the point system overall. But uh, I think this added a third layer of uh, loyalty that uh, you know, Loblaws building and that uh, could be quite successful. It, it also makes you wonder, you know, how much market share will they gain against their competitors? You know, other grocers as well as Rexall and other drugstores.
0: Yeah. drugs. I'm just awaiting the new Shoppers Drug Mart streaming video service. I'm mean, be curious uh, if we get to any original series. Um, I, kid, I kid. As long,
2: I long as it, <laughs> as long as it's not at the pharmacy counter and there's confidential information being given out. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Uh, but you know, let's talk about loyalty programs because. It's not just Loblaw that wants to get in on this when it comes to Canadian retailers. It's a uh, Lululemon as well. The the uh, clothing company they are launching their own. It's about a hundred thirty dollars US. Um, they're going to have more of a curated shopping experience for people. Also, free shipping. What do you make of this one? I, I can kind of wrap my head around the Loblaws one just because we, I mean, we shop at you know grocery stores every single week. I don't know about the frequency with which people shop at say Lululemon.
2: I think that it's really geared towards the super fans uh, of the brand, which would be different than Loblaw. I mean, you know, Loblaw is, just, you know, food and, and drugs and other items, you know, some of it, which are necessities. Nothing that Lululemon sells really is a necessity. So, uh, you know, nevertheless, uh, it's interesting that these companies that I would argue might not even need loyalty programs or launching them because, you know, Lululemon seems to have this cult following already. And. Uh, I suppose this might be just another way of reeling them in, but I honestly don't know if, it, if it's necessary. However, it's been successful from reports. So uh, I guess they're on to something.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, look, I, all the power to them. And I, I just wonder if we are on a path towards like everything is going to be one of those kind of renewable subscriptions that we get, you know, whether it's monthly, annually, where they the businesses have all figured out that the way that you keep customers going is just have these ongoing subscription services like i just think about the way that i listen to music now i, I now have you know an apple music account and i pay you know 10 bucks a month every single month to listen to music as opposed to going out and buying cds now
2: well it's smart for the retailer i mean kind of got you hooked in and uh, <laughs> they've got that loyalty i, I think that we're going to see a lot more of it i mean retailers tend to be copycats and uh, you know i think that you know some of these retailers are probably copying amazon and a few others that have done it and are now uh, i mean we i mean it's not even that new what was it called columbia house you know the oh yeah <laughs> you could have, you could, 10 10 cds for 99 cents or something like that and then you get a gouge for the rest of them and you you have to commit to them I, I went to i went to a boarding school in uh, high school where uh, we used to have mailboxes and the kids used to just use their mailboxes and never get in trouble well, never get in trouble they, they were never charged <laughs> they just right. changed their mailbox but nevertheless uh, <laughs> you know, it's not a new thing, but I think that, yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of copycat, certainly among strong brands. I mean, we may say, you know, Montreal-based Lolay, for example, they may launch a similar program and, you know, whether or not that would be successful, I don't, I don't know.
0: Well, let's also talk a little bit about how one big name retailer might be reshaping its own image here, and that's IKEA. We spoke a little bit a while ago with regards to global layoffs just the other week that were announced at IKEA. Uh, they, they want to call a, a Big chunk of their workforce. And the hints that we're getting is like they are kind of rethinking that big box formats that they are so known for. What do we expect going forward from IKEA in the future with regards to just the way that they have their stores?
2: Well, maybe they'll have a loyalty program. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we were on that topic today. Um, it's interesting. IKEA recently just leased a, a space in Manhattan for a store. So Uh, I think that, you know, IKEA is looking at how our cities are transforming and, you know, uh, Canadian and American cities are becoming, you know, more urban. And I think, you know, Vancouver is certainly on the forefront of that. So would cities, you know, like Boston, San Francisco, New York, Montreal, Toronto. These are all cities that have, you know, dense urban cores with a lot of people living in them. And I think that, you know, IKEA is looking at ways of getting to people perhaps, uh, say, for example, with an urban showroom where you can go in and look at stuff and say you know that's great deliver it to my home and then somehow they'll uh, you know fulfill that request I would assume from some sort of a uh, suburban warehouse or perhaps even their own warehouses that they already have because they have uh, a few of them in Canada and uh, uh, I think that they're playing around probably looking at you know what can they do with e-commerce what can they do with a few other things and I I think that uh, you know I I think IKEA is really looking at themselves in the mirror right now and saying how can they be a bit uh, of a better retailer because they certainly address the suburban market but the urban market which is you know much younger generally than the than average more educated um you know they too shop at ikea and there's an incredible opportunity to tap that market
0: i just wonder why they haven't you know move forward with a lot more of these kind of pickup services. You were, we were just talking about it a, a moment ago with regards to Loblaw and what they're offering there. But I, I think a lot of urban shoppers would go online and then if they could pick up something locally as opposed to having to drive across the Knight Street Bridge to get all the way out to Richmond to pick something up, I, I think there could be, you know, like a minimal, say, retail footprint that yeah, w- would be a little bit more practical for IKEA to, you know, deliver to people.
2: Well, they say that the last mile is always the most challenging in terms of deliveries. And in this case, it's getting the delivery, you know, from wherever the product is to the person's home. And uh, I know that, I don't know, I can remember being a university student, get a friend with a truck and you you go to Ikea and load it up. And I mean, that just, it almost seems barbaric. (laughs) You know, we, I, I, you know, I I don't think I know anyone with a truck now, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) life is different. So, um, I don't know. I mean, to me, I would if it wasn't for the fact that I could possibly get something delivered. I would personally never shop it at an IKEA store. So. And I mean, I'm, I'm not even a millennial, you know, in a, in a lower income bracket. So I think that, yeah, no, I think I is looking at, you know, the younger generation, which is less likely to drive a car and more likely to live in an urban center and, you know, trying to attract that client. So then they're probably on the right track with the store in Manhattan. Well, why don't we talk
0: a little bit about maybe the return of a retailer, uh, probably a little bit better known outside of British Columbia. But tell us a little bit about what the plans are for Byway.
2: Yes. Um, so there was a chain uh, called Byway that was uh, kind of a discount chain. It, it sold lots of value price stuff. There were a few chains like that in Canada's past, and you know they've gone under. I think Dilex purchased uh, uh, Byway, and uh, you know unfortunately, well, Dilex went under, and there were a lot of other issues. I guess apparently lawsuits and whatnot. I'm not actually sure of the full history, but nevertheless, uh, the founder of Byway, who turns 90 next year. Uh, is um, not so much reviving the chain, but he's come up with a chain called the Byway $10 Store, which uh, Hmm. basically have products uh, individually or in multiples that you can buy for $10. So uh, he plans on rolling this out as a chain across the country. And, uh, you know, I I wish him luck. I mean, you know, turning 90 and, and, you know, launching a retail chain is quite remarkable.
0: I I would say so, yeah. To a certain degree, it might be a bit of a young man's game, but I I think uh, if you want to be in business for 90 years, you got to keep busy, right? Absolutely. Uh, But I'm curious. So is the idea like you can buy things, I don't know, like 10 items for $10 or maybe uh, they'll get two items for $10. It's going to be look, we've got the dollar store market covered or cornered. Why don't we jump into the $10 store sort of market?
2: I think that's the gist of it all. Um, some of the products, like for example, you'd be able to get a jacket for ten dollars from a brand name. I mean, they're not Gucci, Prada, or Chanel, but you sure. know, they're sort of the, the outlet center type of brands. We were told not to name them, but <laughs> you know, some some fairly well known brands you see at a regular outlet mall. And uh, you know, for example, say a jacket that would might even retail or even wholesale at thirty eight dollars. I was told would be you know on the market for ten dollars. You're able to get these. Uh, types of savings. So uh, my understanding was that, say, even like, you know, three items for $10. So we like you know, $3.33 each, technically, if you're buying them in multiples. But the goal would be to be, you know, have the items, you know, $10, probably not more than that, I think. Uh, I can't, you can't really buy half an item <laughs> for you know a dollar item ten dollars, but uh, yeah no that 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 was the gist that I got was that this is going to be something of a ten dollars store and we'll have uh, you know a much broader range of items than say a Dollarama would in terms of this would have clothing and toy and more expensive toys and whatnot and they would be brand names uh, whereas you know Dollarama does quite a lot of uh, private label.
0: You know, it's just going to be a very interesting thing to see how this unfolds, because I think, and you can attest to this, just the retail game has changed so much since, you know, I guess, buy low would have launched, you know, many a decade ago. You know, how are we keeping up with the trends? Uh, We have seen a lot of those trends. Just look at the the ascent of, say, dollar stores, you know, just the last 10 years, though. So that is one thing that I, I suppose this company is, you know, attuned to at this point.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Dollarama says it's opening something like 60 to 70 stores in Canada in 2019, if not more. So, uh, you know, physical retail is certainly alive and well, at uh, least really certainly in the dollar store area. And then again, winners, which uh, I, I would say that, you know, uh, Mel Coben's, you know, Byway Revival is a bit of a cross between winners and Dollarama. And, you know, it's more winners in the terms of having designer offering winners carries far more expensive stuff often, though. But winners is growing like crazy. I mean, uh, Some of these retail chains out there are adding stores constantly. And, uh, you know, Winners and Marshalls, they're part of the TGX group along with HomeSense. They've got incredible opportunities. Uh, Now that Sears has gone and Target, uh, you know, exited in 2015, they've got an opportunity for a lot of real estate. So we're seeing them popping up in a lot of malls, and I think we're going to see quite a few more.
0: Okay. Well, why don't we end this conversation uh, bringing things a little bit back closer to home here and talk about Oak Ridge Centre. Uh, tell us a little bit, uh, is there a little bit of a controversy swirling around, say, the uh, the condos that will be part of this redevelopment?
2: I'm not sure if it's controversy, but I know that there were some concerns, uh, there were some discussions online about, I guess, the prices of the units, uh, <laughs> which hmm. I think is interesting. We, um, somewhat, and I, I got a price list for, for what they're asking, and quite a few of the units are asking more than $2,000 a square foot, and uh, some of the units, you know, they're not small for Vancouver, Some are over a thousand square feet, so a lot of the apartments are over $2 million. And uh, I know one young man who grew up on the west side, you know, I guess somewhat more middle class because, you know, Vancouver hasn't always been, you know, a super rich uh, town, <laughs> as some of the older locals would know, including yourself. And um, you know, I guess they feel a little bit shut out of their own neighborhood, realizing that, you know, making, you know, sixty thousand dollars a year, you're not gonna be able to afford a home at Oak Ridge unless, you know, you've got substantial equity that you're able to put in and, you know, either have a small mortgage or none at all. So uh, anyways, it's I think that you know the West Bank. The developer has gotten a bit of a reputation. I don't know if it's deserved, but I do know you know <laughs> there's been some controversy around having offices in China, you know, right. marketing condominiums internationally, and so with Oakridge, you know, and personally, I looked at the floor plans and. Uh, what I recognize was that, you know, given the, the ceiling heights being 8.5 feet, and given that they don't really have guest laboratories, uh, I don't think, you know, a $2.5 million apartment that you could buy for probably, you know, 1.2 downtown would be, you know, something that I would purchase anyways.
0: Sure. Yeah, it, it is interesting, though, because if you look at that, you know, entire Canby Corridor, we're, we're not talking about Shaughnessy, though, like Oak Ridge is, is very kind of, um, just the history of it is it, very kind of, you know, middle class sort of regular old neighborhood and see kind of these huge developments coming up there. I, I do understand And I'm not somebody who subscribes to all the NIMBYism that we often see in Vancouver, but I, I do understand why there might not be 100% buy-in from, you know, the long-term residents there.
2: And Vancouver's, excuse me, Vancouver's west side in the city generally, Um, the city, I think with the city of Vancouver, someone put together a map showing how the affluence in the city has changed. And There's been a real polarization in Vancouver's west side where as long as the growth continues and wealthy people want to live in the lower mainland, uh, they're converging in this area and we're seeing sort of that wealth expand. So someone that may have purchased a detached house in Shaughnessy at one time may now look at, you know, a large apartment at Oak Ridge as being something uh, comparable, especially if they travel a lot and, you know, will be spending time in other cities as well. Having a house is hard to maintain and having a condo, they do it all for you. So... Uh, you know this may be a viable option for international buyers but will it serve the local community well yes and no uh, I mean you you need expensive housing in a city so that you know rich people don't uh, come in and renovate uh, affordable housing like it's happening right now in the west end or in that west case of the west end demolishing housing and mm-hmm. building new very expensive housing so you know I've always I mean I'm a, I study housing <laughs> as well as retail and you know, the cities do need a mix of high-end and, and affordable housing and, and mid-price in order to work. And uh, so, so I do support Oak Ridge overall, but I do think that, you know, people do feel shut out because the prices are not uh, affordable to most.
0: I, I just know I have a, a friend of mine uh, recently moved from Oklahoma to Georgia, and he was complaining about how much higher the home prices are in Georgia versus Oklahoma. And I just wanted to shake my head and say, you know, kid, you, you don't know anything. Like, really, just... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, come to Vancouver sometime. You'll be mortified.
2: I'm curious what the numbers he was talking about were uh, in terms of being expensive, probably like $200,000 or something. (laughs) Yeah, well,
0: I I, I believe his home in Oklahoma, he bought it for one ten dollars US, you know, maybe eight, nine years ago. And so, Mm -hmm. I mean, think about what that would get you here in Vancouver, like anything, like probably Uh, not even a condo. I don't know. A car. Yeah, well, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, hey, Craig, always a pleasure. Uh, We'll talk to you soon.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me on the show today.
0: Excellent. That's Craig Patterson, editor-in-chief, retailinsider.com. And that's it for the show today. You can find our archives on iTunes and Stitcher. So subscribe there or tell a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time.